from Ontic Mind. I'm Dylan Stevens, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, autologous retinal transplantation. So since the objective of the procedure was to close the macular hole, I thought of getting neurosensory retina. First performed in 1969, the vitrectomy allows retinal surgeons to directly manipulate retinal tissues for a multitude of disease processes. Macular holes and subsequent retinal detachments are one such process that can be corrected with vitrectomy. But what is to be done with large or refractory macular holes? My guest today is Dr. Tamer Mahmoud of Beaumont Eye Institute and Associated Retinal Consultants of Royal Oak, Michigan. Over this special two-part episode, we will be discussing his recent work on the utility of autologous retinal transplantation for primary and refractory macular holes. So why don't we just jump right in uh, to the project at hand. Autologous retinal transplantation, ART as it all refer to it moving forward, is a relatively new surgical technique. Could you just briefly discuss the idea of ART and where it may fit into the current day retinal surgeon's toolkit? Uh, sure. So uh, there is a lot of basic science research that uh, uh, was done for the last 20 years that uh, helped pave the way for the autologous retinal transplant. However, the first step of the autologous retinal transplant was by accident. Uh, so I was at Duke and uh, I, uh, I do a lot of complicated surgical procedures. One of them was a macular hole. And uh, this lady came in, uh, she was a high myope, had multiple uh, recurrent detachments from uh, high myopia and a macular hole. And uh, the problem was the hole stays open. Uh, she had ILM peel before. Uh, so the only way that we knew back then, that was in 2015, that possibly we can close the hole uh, is to try to get uh, ILM from the periphery, like a free ILM flap to close the hole. So this is what I told her. I said, you know, the key is to fix that detachment is to close the hole. So we're going to try to get that free ILM flap. It's not going to improve your vision, but the idea is to anatomically close the hole to fix the detachment. So we went in and uh, because she was a high myope, she had a very deep staphyloma. So when you put ICG in the eye, the old ILM was uh, peeled already within the area of the staphyloma, but also the ICG by gravity pulls into that area. It's very difficult to stain the periphery. And even if you have mild staining in the periphery, if you add more, then because she's a high myope, the peripheral retina is already thin and it's thinner in a high myope. So it's almost impossible to get a free ILM flap. So at that time, when I was trying to develop the ILM flap, I found that it is very difficult to do that step. But at the same time, I noticed that the peripheral retina is already very thin. So since the objective of the procedure was to close the macular hole, I thought of getting neurosensory retina. So if I cannot get ILM, I can just get uh, retinal tissue and close the hole. But then I stopped because no one has done it before to try to understand are there what are the possible side effects of doing this, if we get peripheral retina and put it in the macular area, uh, what could possibly be the complications? Um, and then we stopped for about 10 minutes and thought about it and said, you know what? You know, I don't see any problems with this. If it fails, it fails. There are no other options. 
let's just try to close that hole. And this is her own retinal tissue. So I'm not afraid of any immune response or rejection or any of that. So uh, we had to work by manually uh, uh, and put a chandelier in the eye and then worked with the scissor and a forceps and were able to cut that area of the peripheral retina larger than the size of the hole, then moved it to the area of the hole and added PFO in the eye so that it doesn't fly away uh, and stay in the macular area. It was stable under PFO. We were able to close the hole, but we don't usually leave the PFO in the eye. So we do a direct PFO silicon oil exchange. Uh, gas would not be a great option because it's not gonna stay in place. And the whole idea was closing the hole. So this is what I did. I did a direct PFO silicon oil exchange. Uh, and then she came post-op day one, and uh, it was exciting that the macular hole is closed uh, with the neurosensory tissue, but it wasn't a big deal. You know, yes, it was new, but so what? You know, it, it's great that we found a way to close the hole, but you know, yes, instead of ILM, we have neurosensory retina, let's see what happens. We didn't expect much. Uh, then uh, what was really exciting is uh, post-op month one. So she came in, she was sitting in the room with her husband. I, I, uh, before I go in, I usually look at the images I didn't and she was count fingers beforehand. So I walk in and she said, you know, thank you so much. It's so exciting, I'm seeing again. And I'm looking at her, it's like, what are you seeing? And I look and she was about 2200 or 2100. And I thought she may have cheated and looked with the good eye because her other eye was 2040. And then we tried it again and she actually did see much better. So then I went back and I looked at the OCT when the graft in place, the silicon oil is in the eye. But what was very, what was very exciting is that that thin peripheral retina was thicker on the OCT and started developing outer layers. So, and this was a very large uh, uh, high myopic hole. Where did that come from? So this was the beginning of that whole idea that opened the door. And then we started thinking about the different hypotheses, looking at all the basic science that was done for the last 20 years and to understand more about the potential of the autologous retinal transplant. Man, there's a lot of exciting details within that case. And I think that represents a lot of the things that I am interested to ask you about moving forward. I just wanna step back for a second and uh, speak generally about macular holes and macular hole retinal detachment combined. What do you consider the current gold standard for the management um, of those patients? And when, if and when I should say, ART becomes more prevalent, where do you see that sort of fitting into the meshwork? So uh, I don't think we can say there is a gold standard. Or if we would say there is a gold standard, it would change every few years, depending on the procedures being developed and so on. So we all remember when Kelly and Wendell developed initially parsplanobitrectomy for macular hole, and nobody, nobody believed that this can work. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of uh, uh, criticism to considering a procedure for macular hole. And indeed, over the years, we found that relieving that anthroposterior traction by parsplanobitrectomy can help close the hole and adding a gas bubble in the eye. So back then in the 80s, 90s, that was the gold standard for macular hole. And then uh, um, Eckerd and others developed ILMP. So the problem with ILM peel is when you do a parsponavitrectomy and relieve the anthroposterior traction, there is still tangential traction from the ILM. And uh, some fresh small holes can close by relieving the anthroposterior traction. But if you have a chronic hole or a larger hole, you need to relieve that additional traction. 
But the problem back then is we could not visualize the ILM. So you can peel something and you would say, oh, probably I peeled the ILM, I'm not sure how much I peeled. The breakthrough came when a dye like ICG dye was developed. So everyone could visualize the ILM and make sure that they completely remove the ILM or decide how much they release from the ILM traction. So this was a big milestone that uh, ILM peel helped close most of the holes that we see nowadays. So if you would ask the question about gold standard, I would say that for typical small macular hole, the gold standard is vitrectomy with an ILM peel. Uh, however, uh, now we know that, uh, yes, most of the macular holes we see in the clinic, 90% are the smaller one, but the word small is relative to. Uh, we used to say that a large macular hole is above 300 or 400 microns. That's not anymore because uh, since we developed the autologous retinal transplant and other procedures, now we're thinking of 2,000 microns hole, 3,000 micron holes. So therefore, a 400 is really a relatively small type of hole. And therefore, we, you know, thinking about gold standard, we have to devise a new classification to understand which surgical option in a flow chart would, would work better for which type of hole. So maybe responding to the question in a different way, I can tell you about my flow chart that I use nowadays. Uh, uh, this is not standard for anyone, but this is from the studies that I have seen. And in my hands, this is what works. So if I have a small hole less than 300 microns, uh, fresh, recent, no epiretinal membrane with anteroposterior traction, fars vitrectomy is enough to close that hole. If you have a larger hole than 300, smaller than 400 microns of, or a chronic hole, ILM peel would close that hole. Any hole larger than 400 nowadays, you need to try something different. You will need a lot of surgeons and their numbers are decreasing every day that would say, oh no, I can get 500 and 600 and 700 and I peel ILM and it closes. That's not true. You may have some holes that close, but when you look at larger study like Rizzo's study that had more than 600 patients, large holes and high myopic holes closed much better, more than 90% with a primary ILM flap than a regular ILM peel. The chances of success with just the peel is less than 70%. So for a surgeon that doesn't do a lot of those holes and had one or two holes closed, they may respond and say, oh no, it, it, it works. So let's look at this in a different way. So what's wrong with you as a surgeon going in initially and say, I'm just gonna do an ILM peel and if it doesn't work, I can do a transplant or other procedures. The problem is that there is a value of preserving that ILM and using it as a flap. And if you take those patients and do just an ILM peel, you already lost your ILM. And therefore it is important to know which procedure to do initially for those patients. So any of my patients that have a hole that is larger than 400 microns, if they are non-myopic, I do an inverted ILM flap. If they are myopic, uh, like uh, mild myopia or moderate myopia, I do what we call a retracting door ILM flap that we published before. And the difference from an inverted ILM flap, the inverted flap, you go, uh, for example, from the temporal area more commonly, you peel the ILM all the way to the edge of the hole and then invert that ILM over the hole. 
For the retracting door, you will start from the nasal area close to the disc. You peel the ILM beyond the whole edges, all the way to the temporal uh, area as a hinge. And then you let the ILM go so it can go back and cover the hole. And because of the high myopia and the effect of the ILM as a tangential traction, it retracts and covers the hole. If you have a very high myopic staphyloma, it is not easy to reach through the depth of the staphyloma and control your flap, whether an inverted flap or a retracting door. So you have to work with a long forceps, be able to reach to the depth of the staphyloma, use PFO, and use any ILM you can stain and invert it like an envelope or a flower all the way around the hole. The more flaps you can get to cover the hole, the more the chances you can close that hole. However, we have another problem with those very high myopic patients that even with this way can fail. In high myopia, the retinal tissue is stretched. So you don't have much tissue. So even if you use the ILM as a scaffold, the tissue may not bridge and cover the hole. And therefore there is a role in those cases as a primary procedure for the transplant. My current guidelines are if I have a hole that is larger than 650 microns in the minimum linear diameter, I always go for a primary transplant. There are some cases where I may still consider a primary transplant in slightly smaller hole between 500 and 650 if they are high myopic with a staphyloma and I can do it. If they have Alport syndrome, so Alport syndrome, there is a deficiency in collagen type four and therefore there is a deficiency in the ILM. So you cannot use ILM flaps for, uh, from, uh, in those uh, type of cases. And those holes gradually enlarge to become giant holes, thousand more, uh, 2,000 microns and so on. So since you cannot use the ILM, so ILM peel or flaps would not work. So a primary transplant is the fix. Uh, uh, cases with macular telangiectasis. So those patients, the retina is very stiff and because of the, the, that abnormality of the blood vessels and the microaneurysms and the crystals, it doesn't bridge that gap. It's, it exactly behaves like high myopic staphyloma. So if it's a smaller hole, 300, 350, you can try an ILM flap. If it's larger than 500, you may consider a primary transplant. Any recurrent cases, which I call refractory, that means they failed one prior procedure, if it is larger than 600 or 650, I usually go for a primary transplant. I don't like uh, any free ILM flap. I have tried them. In some cases, they work, but the function is not well enough. So you can anatomically close the hole that patients are not satisfied with the function or vision. Well, I mean, I really appreciate you going through that flow chart for selecting the patients, and I can certainly see you know, with those, those giant holes or those myopic patients, or even outboard that you mentioned the, the utility of this ART technique. I just want to say as a brief aside, uh, given the overall lack of prevalence of ART being performed, this study utilized a, a very large group of institutions, you know, spanning worldwide, a number of surgeons, uh, that were, were performing were in different locations. What was it like building this sort of consortium for this study? Uh, so uh, the idea didn't come initially that we needed to do this, but it was a stepwise approach. So initially when we developed the transplant, then some surgeons that are, uh, that are experienced in those types of procedures in high myopic macular holes, especially in Asia, which they see a lot of high myopes uh, at a younger age, 
um, were excited about the procedure because they don't have something that works. We didn't have many options back then. So they started doing some of those initial transplants. And um, uh, I used to go to many before the pandemic, of course, a lot of those surgical meetings. And we have very close circles of good friends that we share all those procedures, discuss how to go about doing those procedures, improving the technique, uh, uh, providing tips and tricks, what works, what doesn't work. So we, start, we started sharing some of those cases and then gradually things were being built. So we started with a small group of surgeons in the US and uh, internationally, and we published the initial surgeon study with four surgeons that initially adopted the technique and we had 41 eyes. We published it in ophthalmology in 2018. Uh, and uh, we were excited about the potential of the ERT. And then since then, we, the more we go to conferences and talk about it, the more I have seen surgeons uh, talking to me, we talk on the phone internationally and nationally and uh, help them prior to um, doing their first case and so on. And it's not like macular translocation. This is a much easier procedure. I don't wanna totally simplify it and say this is a cut and paste, you know, there are definitely tips and tricks, but any fellow who was trained in retina surgery should be able to do this procedure. If you look at every step of the procedure, it's not something that you cannot do. Um, it's simply cutting and, you know, knowing where the tissue is, cutting the tissue, putting the tissue, covering the hole and making sure it stays in place. And there are so many tools we have to make this successful. So since we're going to many meetings and we're publishing and we're sharing that experience with a lot of surgeons worldwide, uh, we got to a point where it's not enough to have few surgeons. We need to know about the global experience and to know what works and what doesn't work. So it wasn't a good idea to go for a prospective study because that can take years. And also you cannot standardize the technique because everyone is doing it a little bit different. But if you have a bigger number of cases, you may look back and adjust for the confounding variables and try to detect what works and what does it work? And this is exactly what happened. So with the help of uh, uh, a fellow and a resident, and I was trying to reach many of the surgeons that I have talked to before that I know have done the procedure. And then we sent flyer emails through uh, global societies in Asia, in the US, in Africa, in Australia, uh, Latin America, so that they can try to find surgeons that had done the procedures. We didn't exclude anyone, all comers, and we asked them, do not give me your best case. I want your best and your worst case. I want to see the complications, the struggle that you went through, because if we collect uh, a lot of information about the procedure, the what works, what doesn't work, we may get clues that can help us move forward. And this is exactly what we did. We were adding uh, patients every day. We reached uh, worldwide to anyone that has done the procedure. Some have done one, some have done 10 but we included everyone that you know, was able to reach us before the deadline so we can do the analysis. And what we did is that we worked on a spreadsheet uh, so that as much as they can, they can answer each question we have in the spreadsheet. Definitely there is some you know, information that is lacking because not everyone can respond to every question in the spreadsheet. You know, the duration of the macular hole, uh, you know, what type of, you know, there are things that they have to answer and they can answer, like what type of tamponade, like was it oil or a gas bubble or PFO? 
but the, uh, there are things that their pictures were not good or someone sent them from outside and they did it and they were based on a clinical configuration. So they had an approximate idea of the base of the hole. Um, uh, one information that was lacking, how long that that patient had the hole, you know, especially primary and refractory. Some of them, we didn't know how long they had the hole prior to the procedure. So this is how we develop that consensus and that global consortium so we can get the data for the uh, ERT. Uh, study. Got it. So, I mean, knowing that information that we were looking retrospectively back at surgeons uh, that had these cases, whether they went well or went poorly, one thing that that certainly would vary or did vary, I should say, uh, between surgeon to surgeon was the choice of location and even the depth of the ART. I noticed, you know, a choice of the neurosensory retina or the retina and the choroid was taken as, as a graft, a more posterior, more anterior location was chosen by certain surgeons. Why was this uh, choice made by certain, certain people? And what, what part do you think that plays in the eventual outcome? Uh, great. So um, we didn't choose a specific site and we didn't standardize because it wasn't a prospective study. We were very interested to see if there is a correlation between the location where you get the graft from and functional outcomes. And we didn't find any. And I don't think we can come up to that conclusion. There was some instances where we think the nasal area was better, uh, some of the superior areas, but uh, because yes, we have uh, 130 eyes, but there are so many confounding variables. So it was very difficult to say that better outcomes are associated with a specific location. We can discuss that more in the future for the future of ART, but um, uh, the, the whole idea of the ART when the surgeons that I talked to initially and they asked me, where did you get the flap from? My preference was initially to get it superiorly. Uh, why is that? Because we are creating a retinal break. And if we are creating a retinal break, there is an incidence of uh, post-op detachment and PVR. So to reduce that, there is much less incidence of PVR if you have a superior break than an inferior break. So if I, if I can reach an area of the superior retina easily, I'm right-handed, so usually superior temporal or superior nasal, whatever is easier uh, that I can reach and safely cut that retina, that's what I choose. And then I leave PFO, or even with the direct exchange, uh, you have less incidence of post-op retinal detachment with a superior break. And this is why in our study, the incidence of a superior uh, location was much higher than the inferior location. Some got it from the nasal area, but we didn't find any correlation between the location of the graph and the outcomes or functional outcomes. Now, when you look, when you ask about the depth of the neurosensory uh, transplant, whether you get neurosensory retina or choroid, definitely we would be able to get only neurosensory retina or choroid. There is a clear differentiation for a surgeon surgically between those two. You cannot cut deep and get choroid and you don't know. You will know because it can bleed. So getting retina and choroid is not complicated because that's what we do for chorioretinal biopsies. But because the choroid bleeds, you have to do diathermy 360 and move that to the area of the hole. There were fewer cases in the study because those surgeons that chose the combined choroid RPE and retina were patients that had very advanced macular holes with underlying atrophy. Like for example, macular degeneration with geographic atrophy with overlying macular hole and so on. Uh, so 
we don't decide on getting choroid except if we have significant atrophy and prognosis is not great for those. We published a paper about doing combined retina and choroid even without macular holes and we had very exciting results in some cases of geographic atrophy, dyskiform scars and even kids with retinal dystrophy. And I think it may have potential in the future but it's a more complicated procedure because of the bleeding and so on. But most of the cases were just neurosensory retina and most of the holes we do are only neurosensory retina. Please join me and Dr. Mahmoud in the next part of this discussion of autologous retinal transplantation. You can check out Dr. Mahmoud's paper, Autologous Retinal Transplantation for Primary and Refractory Macular Holes and Macular Hole Retinal Detachments in the May 2021 edition of Ophthalmology. This interview and those before it are meant to be part of a conversation. If you have any questions or comments for Dr. Mahmoud or any of our prior guests, please reach out to the podcast at josh at onticmind.com. As seen from here is a production of Ontic Mind Incorporated. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Dylan Stevens.